From Philadelphia Young Playwrights, this is Mouthful. I'm Trine Nuri. Every week, we'll be having a complicated conversation with a young person about the things that matter to them, things that they have written about and shared on stages across the city. And then we'll go out into the community and talk to teens, adults, experts, anyone who can broaden the conversation. This week, we have a complicated conversation about addiction. What does addiction look like? When do you know that you're addicted and have a serious problem? Addiction can look like many different things. For clarity, in this episode, we'll talk specifically about addictions to cigarettes and drugs. And I would think that, oh, this is not bad because I'm just doing like one cigarette or two cigarettes. That's Sharmira Nelson. When she was a junior in high school, Shamir had a secret. She was addicted to cigarettes. And it's not bad. And, and it is bad. Sharmir wanted to quit, but she couldn't figure out how. So she wrote a monologue entitled Addiction. I wanted to know the mind of a cigarette. Written from the perspective of a cigarette itself, Sharmira's monologue is a powerful glimpse into the psyche of addiction. Let's listen to the monologue. Performed by Jaylene Clark Owens. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. I'm always here for you, especially through those times when you need someone to understand you or feel your pain. Just tuck me between your lips and dangle me when you breathe. My kisses curl up in your tongue while I move inside your body. I like slowing your nerves down and numbing the areas where it hurts. (laughs) You can't get enough of me. I'm the reason you live every day. We give each other life. What? What you say? You're sick. Sick of what? Me? Well, what I do? Give you what? Oh, that's impossible. You're what? You're leaving me? Oh no, baby, you can't leave me. You said you was going to leave me many, many times, but you never did, and you never will. I just wanted someone to love me for me. I wasn't intending to harm you. But you did this to yourself. I wasn't always this way. Don't you remember? I was born in the southern soil of Virginia. Blistered slave hands picked me when I grew green and glorious. They laid my lime skin in the sun till I turned a beautiful brown and delicate, dry and easy to break, easy to share. They tucked my shredded body in wooden pipes, breathed me in easy, slow and sudden. My smoke rose smelling sweet and soothing. Me and my lovers had a real kind of love. They held me in rather than cough me out. (coughs) Look at you. Cover your mouth. You did this to yourself. Don't you remember that day? Those slave hands didn't touch me. 
It was these metal claws that drew me from the ground and they carried me to a hostile home with silver moving machines. I felt cold. My bright sun didn't glaze me with the nutrients I wanted because it wasn't there anymore. Instead, it was a gray and cloudy sky full of depression. They force-fed me this black seasoning that tastes like some rah-rah shit. It tastes like something deadly or unreal. I was angry and eager, bitter and lustful all at once. And then they had the nerve to dress my sexy brown body in some tacky-ass tissue paper. Place this ugly orange hat on my head, called it my butt. From that point on, I never felt myself again. So you see, it's not my fault you're sitting here looking like a corpse. It's yours. My life ended when those silver machines man-made me into this minion monster. I wasn't the real gal that sweet-talked my lovers into loving themselves anymore. Now I'm a fake, a big phony that bamboozled you into loving me more than your own reflection. Red lipstick placed on my forehead, I mean, but that's a sign you love me, right? So don't tell me I'm the problem. You made me this way. I'm just paying the price. <laughs> You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. I love you. I love you to death. Um, I'm calling from my house, um, currently, um, actually expecting 35 weeks, so... Sharmir joined producer Mitchell Bloom and I via Skype. Um, thank you. And what's the play, Philadelphia? What was the energy behind you creating this monologue? The energy was, uh, personal experience, in a sense. Originally, I'm a poet. Personification. Poems were very popular, during that time. So I was a part of the, you know, the hype. And I wanted to be, I wanted to do something out of the box. I wanted to also touch on the fact that I personally had like a secret addiction with cigarettes. I wasn't one of those people that that was out smoking in public, but um, I also had a history with smoking. The poem, which got converted into a monologue, um, helped me with that addiction. Do you still smoke? No, I don't. <laughs> so when when did you actually um, quit? Um, the poem was released, in, I think it was 2012, 2011. And a monologue was around that time. So it's been around that time since I stopped. So can you um, explain to us why you chose the metaphor of this love for the cigarette, this relationship that the person has for the cigarette? So... I know when it comes to um, an addiction, uh, the person, they don't know what they're doing. They're not really focused on themselves, but they're focused more on so the substance. And the reason why I chose a love is because that's what love really is. It's like a high 
And I know even with a cigarette, you can still feel a high. It may not last for hours like some drugs, but it lasts for that moment. And, you know, with cigarettes, it has, you know, chemicals and things in it that makes you want to, um, it makes you want to keep smoking it, even though it's bad. And that's why you need to be patient with people because you have to understand that it's not always the person, but it's the drug. Let's talk about the section when you wrote about the process in which the cigarette was actually made. And um, so why did you want the audience to go through that journey with the cigarette? Um, (laughs) I wanted them to go through the process with the cigarette so they can know what the heck the cigarette is going through. And also for them to know that it's really not even, it's not, it's man. It's man that's controlling most of what we consume. So the earth already has produced some natural substance that is supposed to do something to our bodies. But man has produced it and abused it where they made it into a market to make more money, but at the same time produce more death. This natural, beautiful substance turned into something ugly and turned into a monster. Unfortunately, because of the power of man adding, you know, everything into it, all the things that make it unnatural and causes the cancer and the death and the addiction. Do you think that... Your writing, your poetry, your monologue, was that what got you to stop? In a way, yes. Because every time I would be reminded to, when I performed the poem or when I heard the monologue, I would just be thinking, dang, I can't go home and I would be a hypocrite. It's what I'm talking about. And it would really, really, really bother me inside. Because it's like I'm writing this, this piece to help people when I'm struggling with it myself. And I know people go through that all the time, especially artists. But it, I think it hurt, hurts the artists more that their own art can't heal them. And I remember the taste of it. You really don't ever forget the taste of something that does that potent. Nobody should smoke. <laughs> it's very bad. It's horrible. Uh, it's, I say, don't start nothing, you know, that can finish you. Like, not only are you not able to stop, like, it's it's only going to get worse. Shamira's monologue is about cigarettes, but the voice of addiction that she created is so strong and compelling, we knew it spoke to other experiences as well. So producers Mitchell and Maya Penn talked to a recovering addict. We'll call him John. He spoke to us on the condition of anonymity, since he's a member of NA, Narcotics Anonymous. Did you get it? Did you get a chance to read the monologue? Yeah, I did. So I read it like twice, and like a couple things like stuck out to me. Um, you'll never let me go. You've tried so many times before, and that that kind of like concept of just like being stuck. You know, uh, I could relate to that, and also I could like relate to, and obviously not from like the cigarettes perspective of like me changing, but like how um, in my like my addiction changed as well. You know how. Uh, beginning was so euphoric and so much about just enjoying myself and having fun and partying um you know fast forward to like when it wasn't like that and it was dark and it was like she i think she put it like a cloudy you know cloudy skies um so i like that yeah can you tell me a little bit more about about your experience yeah sure um (laughs) i use drugs you know uh and as I was saying, like in the beginning, um, like I liked it. I liked feeling 
like I just you know all these like firsts you know and all these like exciting like just doing this like thing that was kind of like taboo and not okay and like doing it anyway kind of attracted me but also just like the feeling you know getting high like feel felt good um so and it lasted like that for a long time and you know as time went on like over a period of like years things started to change a little bit uh to the point where like um I started using pills every day um, and like kind of whatever opportunity presented itself, like whatever drugs, um, like I would take them. Uh, so that started to happen. And, and, um, you know, I could sit and talk about like all these realizations I had and all these experiences I had, um, you know, like inside and out. Um, but like what it really came down to is like, I got to a point where I told myself I wanted to stop and like tried to do everything in my power to stop and realized I couldn't. You know, I would go away and try to, like, detox myself and try to, like, um, you know, only take certain drugs for a period of time. And, and like, every time the opportunity to, to like, go back presented itself, I would take it. Um, so it really got me to this point of, like, realization that, like, I, I can't do this. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to stop. Um, and that's when I asked for some help and found an A. Narcotics Anonymous, or NA, is a global, community-based organization with a multilingual and multicultural membership. Founded in 1953, NA offers recovery from the effects of addiction through a 12-step program, including regular attendance at group meetings. How did you find NA? My parents are in recovery, um, you know, so I knew about it for a long time, which I think my experience in that way is, is a lot different than like a lot of people. And even when I was using and like strung out and couldn't stop and like telling myself like, okay, this is the last night we're done tomorrow. Like the idea to go to meetings like was, it was there and I was just like, no way, you know, it's not something I want to do. And it took for me to feel and experience my own like pain and like suffering inside um, as a result of what I was doing. Uh, for me to really like be able to hear something that could help me. I was at this point where, uh, I, like I said, I was trying to stop over and over again and just like realize like I couldn't and uh, went to my mother, went to my mom and was like, I, I can't stop using it. Um, and she said, go to a meeting. And I went to a meeting that morning and like it wasn't anything like spectacular that happened in the meeting, but like people talked to me and just like made me feel like, uh, like, okay, you know, just trying to make me feel a little bit welcome, I guess, like looking back. And, uh, and it worked and I felt like, like, okay, you know, and I was not in an okay spot. Like I was fucking withdrawing and like miserable that I, I like, I felt like I had lost, you know, like that, uh, like my favorite thing to do was get high and like, I, I can't have that anymore. And that was like a really scary and like hard realization to like have, like I couldn't imagine my life without drugs. Um, but I was also like super scared um, about using again, you know, after like I had been clean for like a couple weeks or like a week or two weeks, I started to just hear people's experience of like what it was like when they, when they relapsed and they went back out and like how much more horrific it was and how like all these, like I nevers kind of came true and like, uh, all this horrible stuff, man. And, and like, I just think about the way that I felt right before I got clean and, and was like so scared to go back to that feeling again. And like, uh, this person pointed out to me, um, that in, in one of the chapters called Recovery and Relapse, there's this line that says, uh, we have never seen a person who lives the Narcotics Anonymous program relapse. 
and it was just very like cut and dry. It wasn't like maybe you can stay clean, maybe this will work for you, maybe not, maybe or only if you've done these certain things, uh, like it'll work for you. Like uh, it was very like black and white. Like we have never seen a person who lives in Narcotics Anonymous program relapse. So when I read that or heard that and like internalized it, it was a really cool feeling, man. And I remember, I remember thinking uh, like, like never, you know, never, that like this will work. Like, not maybe, not maybe not. Like, this will work if you work it. In, in my personal experience, like, meeting a lot of young people who attempt to to stop using drugs but don't necessarily consider themselves addicts or don't consider themselves to have any other addictive tendencies, I wonder uh, why that distinction of it being the disease of addiction is important or was important for you in your recovery. I believe, like, the, the differentiator and, like, if I'm going to use use again or, like, stay clean again, like, today or in that moment or whatever, is that, like, knowing that, like, everything in my experience tells me that, like, I'm an addict, you know, and that it's true. It's, like, an admission that we have to make on our own. And I think that um, until I was, like, at that point, uh, nothing was going to change. Like, that was, like, it was necessary for me to be able to do something different. I'm also really interested in that moment of asking for help. So it's hard as a person to ask for help and, and then accept it. I'm specifically wondering like, what you would say to someone who is maybe not ready to ask for help or has asked for help and then rejects it. What advice you might have for someone who's like at that moment? Um, so like, one of the things that's like really important to me is that like I try uh, to not give advice. You know, like I am in no way an authority uh, or even like an expert on addiction or on like recovery in NA. Um, like, and, and I try my best to like make that very clear. All I have is like my experience and what I can share, you know, and I try um, to like meet people where they're at. So if uh, somebody comes to me and they're like not sure, uh, you know, what they want to do, like the door is open. If you're ready, we're here, you know, and, and if you're not, uh, like that's okay too. Like keep coming. Like everyone is welcome, you know, no matter where you're at, no matter what drugs you're using, no matter what your experiences was like, no matter what, uh, like race or gender or like ethnicity or anything else like that could separate people. Um, like anyone is welcome. Drug use is more and more common. Like there's a lot of young people that constantly are coming into NA, um, like strung out on drugs that will only continue, you know, especially with the dynamic of what is going on with like, you know, the opioid crisis and you know, how bad things have really got. Last year in Philadelphia, 1,200 people died from opioid overdose, the highest number in the country. It's an epidemic that has touched families and communities of all kinds in every corner of the nation. For me, like there's always opportunity to like get involved and like help people out and like reach out to those people and share my experience with them. Uh, it's not only rewarding for me, but like the, like the foundation of how people get and stay clean. For John and so many others, NA has been a life-saving resource. It's for people with addictions of all kinds, and it's free. I don't know what it's going to be like 30 years from now and like if I'm going to still be hitting meetings or if how involved I'm going to be if I'll be alive if I'll be clean like I don't I don't know and one of the biggest things that was like stressed 
uh, in the beginning and like one of the things that I had to like really internalize was that like this is a just for today program and like I just need to focus on now and like uh, you know not use like if it comes down to it like not use for five minutes and I'll worry about the next five minutes after that the rest will come why I still go to meetings um, regularly and why I st I'm still involved um, is that like uh, that there's a uh, you know it's not like a like a I'm cured kind of thing like I, I, I need uh, for me to um, you know remain vigilant and remain uh, you know continuing to work a program of recovery um, because like I've learned how uh, this disease of addiction um, can manifest itself in, in so many different ways in my life and that like, uh, you know, denial and uh, like self-manipulation and all of these things uh, that like I can characterize as like the way that like the disease thinking or the disease of addiction affects me um, come back really easily, you know, and, or like continue to affect me and I need to continue to share about them. Um, but I also get the opportunity to help other people like share my experience and uh, one of the like, cliches that you hear all the time in meetings is like you can't keep what you have unless you give it away so I continue to give it away if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction of any kind there are many resources available to you you can access them through the greater Philadelphia region of Narcotics Anonymous at naworks.org or call the local helpline, 215-NA-WORKS. Is there a resource that you would like to share? Send us a tweet at MouthfulPhilly. Thanks, Sharmira, for chatting with us weeks before giving birth to her first child. And thank you to John for being so willing to have an honest conversation about his personal addiction story. I'm Trinae This is Mouthful. Thanks for listening. Mouthful is produced by Lisa Nelson-Haynes, Trinae Nuri, and Mitchell Bloom, that's me, for Philadelphia Young Playwrights. PYP is an arts education nonprofit that taps the potential of young people and inspires learning through playwriting. Original music for Mouthful was created by Ill Dutes. To join the Ill Movement, head over to illdutes.com. That's I-L-L-D-O-O-T-S dot com. For episode extras and more information, visit mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. That's mouthfulpodcastphilly.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, show us some love, leave a comment, tell a friend, at mouthfulphilly. Subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts to be sure you never miss a conversation. Mouthful is a production of Philadelphia Young Playwrights. Hey, Mouthful listeners, mark your calendars for the 2018 Mouthful Monologue Festival. It's going down April 13th through April 21st at the Drake Theater in Center City, Philadelphia. The festival includes performances of 18 monologues written by middle school and high school students from around the region, including seven that we're going to feature this season on the podcast. The show is pay what you want, which means you can totally pay what you want right after the show. For more information and to make ticket reservations, visit phillyyoungplaywrights.org.